You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Our passage this evening is from 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. Let me read that for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy View. And if you are visiting with us this evening, we are so uh, glad that you've joined us. Uh, We know that this is a really unique time to come and check out a church. Uh, we, we recognize that. So we just want to say thank you for having the courage to come and, and hang out with us. Really, for all of you that are here this evening, thank you for, for being here. And I also want to just recognize those of you that are watching online. Um, we know that for a variety of, re- of reasons, you're not able to join us. And we just want to say that we miss you. Um, we understand uh, why you're uh, not able to be with us. And uh, we look forward to the time when Uh, Lord willing, you'll be able to be back with us soon. In the year of 2002, which feels like a million years ago, um, me and Holly had been married a a couple of years. We were living in uh, the St. Louis area at the time, and we were, uh, it was Christmas time, and we were homesick. Uh, My family lived in southeast Missouri, Holly's family lived in central Missouri, and uh, we, were, we were looking forward, actually, to going and visiting her family, but uh, out of nowhere, it seemed like a massive snowstorm hit us um, where we lived. Um, and we just thought, you know, this is probably, we're going to be hunkered down for a while. We're not going to be able to get to uh, her family, and, and we're just going to have to celebrate Christmas uh, together. Cooper had was about one or so, and uh, we were pregnant with Margot, and you know, that wasn't going to be the end of the world to, to hang out with your wife and your son for uh, the Christmas uh, week. But um, we were so homesick that we uh, called up her family and said, if you will um, meet us in Jefferson City, which is right in the middle of the state of Missouri, if you'll meet us there, we are going to try to make our way to the Amtrak station in Kirkwood, get on a train, and travel to meet you in Jefferson City if you'll pick us up. And of course, um, what's, what you need to know about that is that uh, Holly's dad um, was a railroad engineer um, his entire career, and he's retired since. But um, of course, for him, it wasn't a big deal at all to, you know, he went to this train station all the time. And so um, they had to drive from from this uh, kind of small rural community to Jefferson City to pick us up. That was not going to be a big deal for him. And of course, they were like, we want to see you. So yes, we'll, we'll come and do that. And I'll never forget driving from our home, sloshing through um, crazy amounts of snow. I didn't know if we would make it. We made it to the train station 
station in Kirkwood, Missouri, got on the train, Amtrak. You can imagine, too, this trip was beautiful. Um, snow was falling everywhere, like tons of it and, it, and it was falling from Kirkwood all the way to the middle of Missouri. It was a big snowstorm. When we got to the train station in Jefferson City, as we stepped out of the train station, Holly's dad, Gary, was standing there waiting for us. And I don't know if we just hadn't thought about it or processed it, but, but what I, I know that we, we talked about this later, what we both felt when we saw Gary in that moment was here is our ticket to being with family. The, and the only way actually we're going to be able to be with family, you know, this Christmas week um, is if Gary uh, has the courage to get us in his old pickup truck, 4x4 pickup truck, and drive us another hour from the train station to uh, the, the place where they lived. So we got in his old pickup truck and sloshed all the way from that Amtrak station to this little farmhouse out in the middle of the country. And it is one, to this day, one of the most special Christmases that I can remember ever celebrating in my life. Because as we walked into this farmhouse, um, which by the way was uh, Holly's grandparents' farmhouse, they were, Holly's parents were staying in it because they were building a house, and so they were just kind of halfway there. Um, but, but we went into this home, and this home that really wasn't their home was decked out to the hilt with a Christmas tree and Christmas decorations. As you walked in, you smelled amazing food, and it just smelled like Christmas. And I remember thinking, this would have not been possible unless Gary, my father-in-law, would have been willing to meet us at that train station in Jefferson City and drive us all the way to their farmhouse out in the country. It was possible because of him. And maybe I could say it this way. That experience for me uh, is a shadow of what this series is that we're getting ready to walk into here over the next few weeks leading us up to Christmas. Someone had to mediate hope for us and, and the way that he did that is he had to like actually show up to do that for us. He had to manifest himself, his presence, in order to give us hope, give us enjoyment, give us uh, fun and family and food. That is a shadow of where we're headed over these next few weeks. We are tonight beginning a series that'll take us all the way up through Christmas called Incarnate, as you can see here on the screens. And what we're doing in this series is looking at a handful of passages that talk about this beautiful, deep, profound, mysterious doctrine called the incarnation. What is the incarnation? The incarnation is the, the, the story of God the Father sending Jesus, the God-man, from the culture of heaven into the culture of man to bridge the gap that existed between a sinless God and a sinful humanity. This was God's plan from the beginning of time, and what the incarnation is all about is, is Jesus coming to earth to be the once and for all sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. In the same way that, that my father-in-law bridged the gap towards family and fun and, and, and Christmas, which is, and that's a shadow of what we're talking about. 
We are in this series looking at the way that Jesus did this cosmically through the incarnation. And the beauty of this great doctrine isn't just, you know, when you hear theology or hear the word doctrine, you think that's going to be a great thing for my, my head, like my mind. And it will be. I hope that things, you, you grow in your knowledge of what this great doctrine is all about. But more than that, or maybe equal to that, we hope that this moves us personally and as a church more deeply into worship. We pray that the truths of the incarnation that we're going to look at over these next few weeks get into our hearts and cause us to fall in love with Jesus more, to worship Jesus more deeply. And so as we step into our passage tonight, I, I want to invite you to see two things. First, the incarnation brings a salvation grounded in history. And second, the incarnation brings a joy completed in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to First John that you heard Ryan read. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin right there in verse 1. In this series, again, we are looking at the doctrine, the theological idea of the incarnation, Jesus, the God-man coming from the kingdom of, of heaven into the dimension of our time and our space. And and as we get into our passage tonight, I want to show you why this passage is one of the incarnation passages that we find in the New Testament. It's there in verse 2. Look there. The Apostle John says that Jesus, the one that they had heard, the one that they had seen, the one they had touched because they walked with Jesus in his ministry, became manifest. Manifest. What does that mean? Manifest means that, that Jesus became visible. He became observable. He became palpable. But manifest from where? Here is where the profound and confounding mystery of the incarnation begins to take shape. In verse 1, it says that which from was, that which was from the what? The beginning. Now, in, in our minds, when we hear the word beginning, we think of time. And you and I, in our lives, our lives began at a certain moment in time. That is not what John means here when he says that that which was from the beginning. In fact, what, what John is, is referring to here is not his birth or the beginning of his ministry, but actually what theologians call the pre-dawn of time. So let me just say that another way. What John is saying, he is pointing to Christ's, listen, pre-existence. Jesus is the uncreated one. And as the uncreated one, he, in the kingdom of heaven, gave up his privileges that were rightly his as king, and he left that culture to come into the culture of man and become an ordinary Jewish boy who was bound for the cross. And this idea of, of giving up his privileges, emptying himself, Philippians 3, that's actually another incarnation passage we're going to look at in a, in a few weeks. But I, I want us to ask this question, why is John making this point for us? Well, it's twofold. First, this, in a sense, is the Apostle John's 1 Corinthians 15. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you see 
another apostle, the Apostle Paul, go to great lengths to ground the historical reality of Jesus in real history. He talks about the the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. He talks about how after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus was visible to over 500 people that included his own disciples, other uh, apostles that were following Jesus at the time. He appeared to James, who was Jesus' brother. He says, Paul says, he even appeared to me. And part of what Paul was doing was saying, hey, you can go talk to those people. They're still alive, and you can verify what I'm saying is true. Well, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, is John's 1 Corinthians 15. Here in 1 John, the Apostle Paul is grounding the person of Jesus in real history by saying, I've seen him too. We have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched them. The person of Jesus has really happened. It is a historical reality. But second, when John says that he is proclaiming to us eternal life, he is doing something even more deeply than just grounding the person of Jesus in history. Listen, he is grounding the work of the person of Jesus in history. He is saying what Jesus came to do, he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and through that, through that life, death, and resurrection, he accomplished what he came to accomplish, and that work is not a fable. That work is not a myth. It is real history. Here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this morning. Excuse me, this evening. Oh, man. What, what time is it? Uh, all right, here we go. The first thing I want to invite you to see this evening is the incarnation brings a salvation grounded in history. One of the most gutting things in ministry for me is when someone that I've walked with in relationship in some way, a Christian brother, a Christian sister, comes to me and says, Brad, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of reasons how people get to that, that place. But one of the most consistent things that I hear from those individuals is, I don't know how to know that I'm a Christian. Like, how do I know that I'm a Christian? And what do I do when I don't feel like I'm one? Or um, what, how can I be assured that I'm a Christian? What John is saying here, in part, in 1 John 1, is that it's possible not only for a Christian to know Jesus, but it's possible to know that you know him and to be absolutely certain that you do. And I'm not in any way minimizing the uh, reality of doubt in the life of a Christian. Some of you here tonight, maybe I just say, I really struggle with my unbelief. You're, You're not alone, even in the scriptures. There are many examples of those that struggle with their faith. But if you're the kind of person that says, man, I hope that I'm a Christian, or I'm trying to be a Christian, or I I really want to be a Christian, but I don't know for sure, it's possible that that means that you don't understand what John is saying here in 1 John 1. All other religions say this, you can save yourself by the way that you live. They might not say it that way, but they're all saying that essentially. It doesn't matter what you believe. 
It doesn't even really matter where you go to church. All that really matters in the end is how you live. Like if you're a decent person, if you're a moral person. I don't know if you've ever seen these, these interviews before, but uh, people will be asked the question, what, what do you think at the end of your life is going to make the difference about whether you go to heaven or hell? And I would say 99% of the answers are, are this. I hope that at the end of my life, the good outweighs the bad. At the end of my life, I hope that God will look at the good things that I did and he'll give me a shot to get into heaven. What that is saying and, and what most religions in the world say is that you can't be sure that you're saved until your life is over. The answers to those questions reflects that. Many people struggle. I, I don't know how I can be assured of my faith. The only thing that I can point to, I guess, is my own works, my own actions. But listen, Christianity, which is built on Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, is the only religion that says you are saved by someone else's life. You are saved in Christianity by the life and the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And it is Jesus that brings you into relationship with the Father. So do you see what that can mean for you? Christianity is the one religion that says you're saved by Jesus's life and in resting in that, you can know that you are saved now. And let me say it this way too. The relative strength of your assurance is not the issue. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you but it's the object of your faith that actually saves you. What is he saying? He is saying that a resting and maybe even somewhat weak faith in a strong savior is all that is required. I wonder if the doubt and the disbelief that we struggle with from time to time is a result of believing what the world teaches us matters, which is our work saves us. But friends, that's not the story of the gospel. That's not the story of First John 1 here. You and I know that if we were to be honest about our own works, they don't measure up. They are self-condemning in, in a sense. We, we know that we don't measure up. And so when we fail, when we fall, we doubt our faith when really we should ask, is it the weakness of my faith or do I believe that there is a, a strong savior who I've rest, I'm resting my faith in? Like the question is really, do I believe that the life and the death of Jesus was for me? Have I placed my faith and trust in that, friends? It is not the strength of that that saves you, but if you put your faith in the object of that saving, you can know that you know that you are saved. Friends, that is how you allow the object of your faith to save you, not the relative strength of your faith. John is saying that the object of your faith, Jesus, and his salvific work for you on your behalf, grounded in real history, is what can bring you assurance. 
And do you see that something that is real, something that is grounded in history can do that for you? If this is just a fable, if this is just a myth, if this is just a great story but not real, there is no assurance that can come from that. John is saying to us, no, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the same thing. The point that they're, they're trying to encourage us and say, don't doubt the reality of a historical Jesus. Friends, in our culture right now, it's everywhere to doubt that. If it, ever, it seems like every Easter season, uh, Time Magazine comes out with some sort of new thing to refute the real historical Jesus. We have to choose what we're going to believe. Are we going to believe John and Paul or the world? John here says, you can know that you can know. The incarnation of Jesus brings a salvation grounded in history. Look with me, if you would, at verses 3 and 4 again. John goes on to first say that the message of salvation that is grounded in history, it creates something. I wish we had more time to talk about this. One of, you, one of the values for us here at Mercy View is the value of community. Uh, John uses a little different word to describe that here when he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Uh, John is saying that the gospel message creates community. And, and that's beautiful here. It's saying that it binds us together, those that receive the gospel. It creates that. And uh, that's awesome. But I want you to notice here, second, John says that the gospel message uh, is even richer than mere human fellowship. Because if you are a believer, you now have fellowship with who? The Father and the Son. Communion with the Father is made possible by the mediation of the incarnate Jesus, the Son of God. And I want you to see that, that John is connecting this fellowship with the Father and Son to something. It's in verse 4. Let me just read that again for us. John closes out our passage to say, he's writing all of these truths for this purpose. He says, and we are writing these things so that our, your, joy may be Complete. Now think about that phrase for a moment. Complete joy. I don't know how that phrase lands on you. In other words, when you hear John say, all of these truths that we just talked about contribute to you experiencing complete joy, does that feel right to you? In other words, is it possible for you and I to experience complete joy on this side of eternity. John seems to be suggesting that we can have a joy that is real, that is absolute, that is total maybe, um, but does that mean on this side of eternity that we will never face anything other than things that are not joyful? Like when we face suffering, well, does, that, does that mean like, um, to experience complete joy somehow means we won't ever suffer or we won't ever have issues of doubt or disbelief. I don't think so. In fact, in the original languages that this book was written in, the point that Paul is trying to make here 
is that there is a joy that is possible for the believer to experience that is as complete as one's joy can be on this side of eternity. Does that make sense? All right, this word complete here uh, is a word that means to fill something to the brim. A word that we could substitute, I think, with integrity here would be the word fullness. And this is a biblical idea, right? Uh, Psalm 1611 comes to mind. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Right? Fullness doesn't necessarily mean once and for all completedness, but rather being filled to the brim with joy. And John is writing these things to us so that our joy may be full, may be filled to the brim, may be filled to capacity. And here's what is amazing. John is actually using a tense of the word complete here that, me, that means you and I receive this joy not because we muster it up, but rather because it comes from an outside source. In other words, we do not fill ourselves up with joy through our own efforts, but we permit the Spirit to fill and control us with the Father and with the Son. And you see what's happening here. Here we see the eternal community of the Trinity in full display. The Spirit and the Father and the Son working to bring about in us joy, complete joy full joy. Uh, on Wednesday of this week, I was headed home after working uh, in th that afternoon at Double Shot, and uh, as I was driving home, I heard the sound, the sound of like flapping rubber and metal on asphalt, the sound of a flat tire. I had just left downtown. I was on the BA. I was, it was right before the Utica Avenue exit. Thankfully, I was able to pull over to the shoulder and for those of you that have experienced this, you know that the only way that you can get moving again is that flat tire has to be changed and you have to get a tire that has air in it to be able to drive to your destination. Without that tire, you are not going to be able to be supported in the way that you need to. And you need all four to be firing on all cylinders for, for you to be able to drive. And here's the deal. When your vehicle tires are good, if you haven't had a flat in a while, you begin to, it starts to kind of go in the background. You take for granted that your tires are okay, right? I don't even know what happened Wednesday, but uh, must have ran over something, a nail or something. And before I knew it, the, 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 t the tire was, there was like a line, like all the way almost through it. It just ripped clear through. When your tires are good, you don't think about it. They just work. They're a steady support for you. They're undergirding you, right? Even when you do come across a pothole or a, an obstacle of some kind, the tires, your brakes and other things, your old vehicle, it assists you to avoid or to deal with those obstacles. Friends, because of what the incarnation means, it's possible to have the kind of fullness of joy in this life that are like the tires on our Ford Transit. Here's what I mean by that. John is telling us here that you can have a joy that is underneath everything, sustaining you, supporting you, assisting you like the tires on a vehicle, no matter what the circumstances may be for you. And this is the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The incarnation brings a joy completed in Jesus. 
The reality of our lives, friends, and, and, and if we've never, it feels so pointed in 2020, I feel like we felt this so intimately this year, we live in a Genesis 3 world, right? We live in a broken world, there is suffering around us, there is suffering uh, in us, and, and we're either suffering, some of you are suffering right now, you're coming out of, of suffering by God's grace, or you're getting ready to step into some kind of suffering. Suffering is a rude reality in the world that we live, on, live in. It has a 100% track record for all of humanity. We all have to face it. No one is immune from it. So how do we say that we could possibly have complete joy as John is promoting here in this passage? How do we say, like the psalmist says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy? That almost doesn't make sense to us, right? There are two things that help us get this kind of joy. And we've already said one of them, you have to have fellowship with Jesus. That means you have to have a regular experience of communing with him. You have to experience as it says in Romans 5.5, 5, God's love being poured into your hearts. I love how the KJV says it. God's love shed abroad uh, in your heart. In other words, you have to have an ongoing sense of the gospel dealing with you. Where does that happen? Well, it definitely happens in our own personal walk with the Lord. We, you may need to think about that. Like, what does that look like in your life? Is that a place that I am intentionally pursuing God? Am I taking time to do that, to let him deal with me? But here at Mercy View, we have a lot of context that we hope you're taking advantage of so that in community, you're also letting the gospel deal with you there. MCs, D groups, equip groups, uh, informal kind of connections, mentoring, discipling relationships, the men's ministry, scrum, nourish, uh, women's ministry. There are a lot of opportunities to grow in our experience of communing with God. One of the ways, if you're not experiencing joy, full joy, uh, filled to the brim joy in your life, it's Maybe because you're not fellowshipping with Jesus in a way that's going to provide that kind of joy for you. But second, you, you, you might need to see that your fellowship with the incarnate Jesus isn't based on your work, but his work. Here we are back to what we just talked about a while ago. If his work was real and true, if it came from outside of you and because of it, he absolutely loves you and accepts you. You belong to him. You are pleasing in his sight. If you begin to know those things, if you experience those things when you're in communion and fellowship with him, those kinds of things are gonna help work out joy in your life. They're gonna help undergird you and support you just like the tires of a vehicle will in your life. See, friends, Christianity offers something through the suffering that you won't find anywhere else. Knowing Jesus, who was seen and touched and felt, who came in the flesh, did these things for you so that you can face anything. 
Christianity says that if you know these things are true, if you know that the word of life, the, the, the flesh, uh, uh, Jesus that came in the flesh died on the cross for you, and you know that, you can have something sustaining you, something supporting you, something underneath you that gives you balance and hope in the face of anything in life. And there's only one way to get a joy that is indestructible, a joy that is full, a joy that is filled to the brim, a joy that is at capacity. It's to know the Father and the Son. And the Son, His work in His life, death and resurrection, friends, was real. It was grounded in history. And it is now a free gift given to you that, that you can now experience forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, hope, joy, and this also creates a joy that is defiant, humbly defiant, but it's a joy that's never based on your circumstances, but found in Jesus, the one who was the word made flesh, the one who was made manifest, the one who is incarnate. Let's pray together.